Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today I speak with illustrator and designer Zach Hazard Valpin. Enjoy. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Where do you live again? I've totally forgot. Was I live in Queens. Queens. How long has that been? Um, since like the middle of 2019, like a, like six months before the pandemic. Really, I, I moved out here. I was living in Brooklyn before that. And are you originally from New York? Yeah, I grew up um, like an hour north of the Bronx. So. Um, I've lived in New York my whole life, except for three years where I lived in Baltimore. Mm, that makes sense. The work for me is, I can see some Baltimore in there. Yeah, I went to MICA for three years. I, I went to SVA first, and uh, I didn't like it, so I switched. And did you like MICA? I did, but I got kind of fucked over by uh transferring because they didn't accept a lot of my uh, foundation credits. So I ended up having to take another year of foundation <laughs> on top of uh, trying to catch up to everybody else. So I really feel like I only got two years of school out of, out of the three I was there, but. Wow. That's laughable. That, I mean, foundation is foundation. I imagine it's very similar. It's, it's always the same shit. <laughs> yeah. So it, it didn't feel like there was anything different happening other than um, I, I deferred doing all of my foundation redos to my senior years. <laughs> so it was like big fish and small pond time. <laughs> Did you enjoy foundation? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> really? I look back, I, I look back I on think... it with, with fondness for some reason. Oh, interesting. No, I felt like, I mean, I don't know. I, I was like completely unmedicated ADHD mode. So I, I, I uh, didn't really pay that much attention the first time I was going through a foundation. I felt like it was just a rehash of high school art classes, though. And then my so second fair. time through it, I don't know, it, it was I, I knew what I wanted to do with my time in terms of making art. So I just kind of was able to to use it for that. So the second time through it really wasn't so bad, but it wasn't really a, a learning experience either. Were you making comics at that time? Yeah. Yeah, I've been making comics since I was like... Well, I think in one form or another, I've been making comics since I was a small child. Uh, my first sketchbook I remember getting when I was I was like five years old, my parents got me this kind of large sketchbook that had uh, like a square that you could draw an image in and then some lines to write a description or... Uh, a caption or something. Hmm. So I think I think I was just hardwired for comics from an early age. But I think I, I started making like zines and mini comics when I was like 16 or 17. So um, I, I like knew already that I wanted to make comics before even entering school. So when I uh, when I did start undergrad, I went to SVA first for cartooning because I was like, wow. <laughs> You could you could just go to school for comics. Uh, great. And then after being in school for comics for a couple of years, I uh, started to realize that it's not like a, a career that you can just do that for most people. 
Right. So I was like, I, I got to get out of here and get a skill. Uh, SVA wouldn't let me take any printmaking classes. And that was like the only skill I could think of that I wanted to develop in art school. So I ended up transferring to MICA so that I could uh, do printmaking undergrad. So basically, yeah, I had a similar conclusion. I took illustration and in hindsight, I was like, why did I should have done something where, where like a facility existed that I couldn't replicate in a house. And printmaking is a thing that comes to mind with its gigantic presses and acid and all that. Um, whereas illustration was just a process, which I took for granted how important that process was. Um, yeah, because I, I understand that. I mean, I'm a professional illustrator now, and I wish that I had taken, um, I don't know, at least some like business illustration classes or something. <laughs> I, I was like a big idiot after I got out of school. I didn't know how to do uh, anything other than other than draw and make prints. So you make a living off of illustration? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a small living, and it took me a really long time to kind of figure out how freelancing works. But uh, yeah, I make you know en enough to get by now, uh, just just on illustrations alone, which is nice. And it's for mostly for tabletop RPG games, uh, mostly in the indie scene. Uh, I don't think I have the sensibility for the mainstream of any industry, but. I've been fortunate that uh, people really like my work in that scene, and it's a lot of fun, and I get uh, a good amount of freedom uh, with with how I uh, do the illustrations and the content. And like, I don't know. I, I I feel like when I talk to other illustrators, they have a lot more complaints about their clients and like the kind of stuff that they have to do, or the kind of uh, I don't know, like the level of um, What's the word? Uh, compromise? Yeah, the amount of compromise that, that goes into it. I, I don't have to compromise too much. Yeah, no, I was I was curious when you said it, because I was like, I can't imagine you doing like New York Times editorial illustration with your style. But yeah, occasionally I get an, uh, an editorial gig, and they're they're always kind of weird, because <laughs> I just don't know what they're expecting. And uh, they, they always end up being like the most work for the least amount of pay. So I don't, I don't usually like seek them out, but occasionally they land in my lap. So that's fascinating. I play a lot of board games. I don't think I play, no, I don't really play RPG tabletops, but I'm curious how you got into that. So, um, actually before I started doing work for tabletop RPGs, I really had very little, uh, awareness of them, especially that there was like an independent scene uh, where people were making games that are like sci-fi or horror or anything like that. I thought it was pretty much just Dungeons and Dragons, which I had played um, a little bit when I was in middle school, but not to like any serious degree. I think I filled out a character sheet one time and played like two or three sessions that were, were probably like not even closely following the rules. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was working in a print shop for like eight years doing design work. Uh, and it was a job where I kind of like worked up to like running the department. I mean, it was just me at first and then I ended up having to hire other people. Mm -hmm. uh, but when the pandemic hit that totally cratered the business. So I had to kind of scramble to figure out, you know, how to make a living. I, <laughs> I couldn't find another job that was similar and I couldn't find anybody that would hire me for pretty much anything for 
like the first couple of years of the pandemic. So I just, uh, just started really seriously trying to figure out how freelancing worked, like asking friends of mine who are freelancers, just kind of making frequent posts on social media that I was looking for work and sharing my portfolio and stuff. And I just started getting, uh, emails from people in the tabletop RPG scene. And, uh, I, I did like a couple of illustrations for one book and then I did a cover for another. And then a lot of people saw that first cover and hired me to do more covers and more illustrations. And then I was kind of like, I should really figure out like how to play these games and like learn more about them. And now, uh, I don't know. It's like my whole, my whole life. <laughs> I'm like really way into these tabletop games now. So you enjoyed them. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Um, I played, I'm like in a play by post campaign uh, for an, another friend of mine's game uh, right now through Discord. And occasionally I get together with other people to, to play other games. I, I don't get to play as often as I would like to, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I It kind of like, you know, caught me by surprise, but now it's, I don't know. I think it's interesting how there's no way to kind of like predict the direction that your life will go. Like if you told me like five or 10 years ago that this is what I'd be doing now, I'd be really surprised. Yeah, no, I think that's part of what's interesting for me about doing the podcast is I do think there's some people who they have like one thing they want to do and they just plow down that path and it's very logical and within their control somehow. Maybe because they can't do anything else. Like, they might just not be that versatile in a, in a good sense in, in some ways. And then other people, you know, sometimes, like, the work finds them. Sometimes they find the work. Sometimes they're so unacceptable aesthetically that, uh, like, you were kind of saying, like, uh, you were just putting out the work. And then it sounds like this scene kind of found you. And it wasn't like you were seeking out these tabletop games as a job or a means to an end. Yeah, definitely. I mean, now, obviously, I am. And I can understand why the people in that scene dig my artwork. And, you know, I feel very fortunate that they do because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't find any other scenes or industries or anything where my, my work seemed to fit for a long time. I feel like I for a while I was that kind of like, headstrong like i only want to do this one thing about comics for so long and then i don't know i think like 15 years of like trying my best to turn it into like a full-time thing or even a part-time thing just i totally got burnt out yeah uh not that I, you know i'm still making comics but i don't feel as much urgency to make them as I did before. I think partially because I, I'm like starting to write my own tabletop RPGs too. So it has kind of the same uh, appeal to me where, you know, I can draw and I can write and I can kind of like play around with both and they can both inform each other, you know, in the same way that they, not the same way, but in a similar way that they do in comics. And in some ways kind of an easier way because uh, you don't need to have like every story beat. <laughs> down in your tabletop game you're just kind of giving hints of a story and giving inspiration for people when they play yeah what i find hard about comics is is how isolating it is so at least with this process that you're describing there's a feedback from other humans and there's a participation so i think that closed world of making comics is its strength because 
you have total control and no one can tell you what to do. But depending on your need for social interaction, I think it can be really hard to sustain over a lifetime. Yeah, definitely. And I think something I've learned about myself is that I do need that interaction. It's hard for me to totally work in a vacuum and be isolated like that. And the like kind of the natural collaborative nature of tabletop RPGs just lends people to want to collaborate and want to like share stuff more often than, uh, than they do in comics. Yeah. If someone's listening to this and they don't know anything about tabletop RPGs, what's the most concise way to explain it or obvious reference point? Um, I mean, you know, other than Dungeons and Dragons, which I think a lot of people have like some vague understanding of, uh, more or less, it's kind of like if a game is a zine instead of being like a digital uh, video component, you know, it's 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 more like people kind of sitting around and telling a story together, but with rules and mechanics that uh, make the story unpredictable and drive it forward without too much pressure on the, you know, players or game master or narrator, you know, to uh, have to do everything, you know. Is there always a dungeon master in some sense? Not always. There's lots of games that um, are GM-less uh, is like the, the term where um, there's no there's no one like specifically that's in charge of keeping track of the game and the rules and everything. It's just, just players all kind of doing it together. There is... Um, there's like solo play where uh, you're you're your own dungeon master in a way. Mm. Okay, so it's like so it's like an elaborate choose your own adventure in some sense. Yeah, definitely, it's a good way of putting it. Especially the solo stuff. <laughs> solo stuff is very similar to like the choose your own own adventure books of yore, but with um, more just like a little bit more rules and interactivity. Would it be fair to say that there's always a fantasy element or like with these tabletop um, RPGs? Not necessarily. Uh, there, there's one one game that I, I, I work on that um, or that was like the first one that I did a cover for that um, got noticed. It's called Liminal Horror and it's a it's like a rule system. So um, there's also adventures for the game that are supplementary that like we either we make or other people make, which is also kind of an interesting thing about tabletop RPGs is there's like a big, another big kind of sharing element with um, people making like supplemental material for other people's games and kind of like stacking up stuff like that and making a lot of stuff that's creative commons that they can just kind of like take stuff from each other without having to ask really. (laughs) But, uh, Oh wait, what was the question? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, I lost my thread. What, what were we talking about? We were well. Now you, now I've lost it. Uh, no, it's kind of about thematically. Does it, oh right, does so the liminal horror. Um, yeah. liminal horror is a, it's a it's a system that is for modern horror. So um, oh. it's less fantasy based, more kind of similar to like a slasher movie or something like that. Yeah, so your world is generally visually pretty horrific. Is that fair? Yeah. Is that has that always been true? I think so. Um, I mean, I don't think 
I was always intentionally making like horror art, but um, I don't know. I, I remember when I was when we were still closed caption comics was still around. Um, we were we were tabling at Mocha or something. I can't remember. And someone came up and asked like what genre of comics we make, and I couldn't think of an answer. And somebody else in closed caption answered, uh, "We make horror comics." <laughs> and I thought about it, and I was like, "I guess that's true." I mean. A lot of like the weird stuff that I was making was was sort of like horror, and I just hadn't really put it together. Is that something you're interested in, like from film, or is this just part of your psyche that this is like, like I really like black and white, so I'm drawn to the work for that reason. But yeah, <laughs> is this? Do you think that means anything about your psychology or your personality, or it's just like an aesthetic interest? I think it's mostly an aesthetic interest, but. Um, I mean, I think there's like obviously a psychological component that makes me attracted to that probably. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 when I think of horror, I don't think, I think of scary, like most people do. Like, I think I'm thinking mostly of the aesthetics. So I'm thinking mostly like, like freaks and weirdos and injuries and stuff like that. So it's not so much that I'm like drawing stuff that I think that is it's scary to me or anyone else. I'm mostly just drawing that kind of stuff yeah. for whatever reason. I mean, I, I do find that health is a big anxiety for me. So I think that's why I like drawing injuries so much, but, um, health is, is an anxiety, like staying what? healthy. Um, yeah, staying healthy, any, any sort of like, any sort of like ill feeling that I'll have or any sort of pain, it, it causes, um, you know, a long spiral of, uh, of worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting to me about it is when I went to school, I could tell who naturally could commodify their style without compromise. It's like maybe they just had a sensibility that was a little more friendly to the market. Yeah. But I'm much more drawn to work where the person's initially more unacceptable and they kind of have to find their way through the world. It probably takes like a decade or through, they find like a niche market that they can actually start living off of. So it's very interesting to see a style, the style you have, and then to hear that you've found pretty steady freelance work. That's, I think, a very hopeful message for a lot of people with a a more, um, not necessarily abrasive style, but stuff that's just not going to fit into like a Google or New York Times aesthetic easily. Yeah, no, I definitely know what you mean. Uh, and I think for me, it was just simply that I, I have like such a low tolerance <laughs> for like having my time wasted uh, right. and like doing stuff that I don't want to do. So, um, especially when it comes to art, like, uh, it, you know, it's like somehow less distasteful for me to like have like a shitty job that I hate. That's like not related to art, but I couldn't do the same type of like hating my job if it was like art based. So, you know, I think, I think when I was in school, I definitely thought like, okay, you know, I'm going to have to grow up eventually and be like more versatile and be able to do like all this, like really boring kind of stuff that is going to pay the bills. And, uh, 
I don't know. <laughs> I never was able to really get over the hump. No, I completely understand not wanting to. Yeah, kind of compartmentalizing it a bit more. Have you had to work really um, menial jobs? Yeah, I mean, I had like had a lot of weird jobs before. Um, before I worked at the print shop, I was uh, I was a barista. I was a um, counter person at a Thai place. Then I worked um, as a dog walker for a couple years. Got really sick of that. My wife worked at a site safety management for construction place and they wanted to hire me after like putting me through like a year and a half worth of courses to become a site safety manager and uh i never i never worked a day of construction but i i went through like a year and a half of, of classes for this and then uh I, I went through like an orientation once i was like all licensed and then they never followed up with me i ended up giving the job to like some nephew or something so then I, I worked uh, at a pizza place and then I worked at an art supply store and then I got fired by the president of that store. And then I got a call from the print shop where I worked for the next eight years until the pandemic. Is that like a screen print type situation? No, it, was, um, it was large format digital printing and okay. uh, cutting. So we did like mostly like um, store displays and stuff like that and signage. Um, a lot of cnc cut stuff uh but it was cool because it was kind of a chill job and my bosses were kind of like i don't know cool with with people using the facilities for whatever they want as long as it didn't conflict with getting stuff out to our clients so i would frequently use scrap material and make um kind of like really cool prints on plexiglass and Sintra and stuff like that that i yeah, I wish I still had access so I could make more of those. But, you know, it, it's cool because I didn't have to pay anything. And uh, I got to make stuff that would, would have cost me like hundreds of dollars. So you've kind of had the natural progression of working really shitty jobs into a pretty okay job into self-sufficient freelance work. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I always kind of like had it in my head that that was the last job that I would work where I wasn't like my own boss, but um, I like didn't really know how to transition out of it. And they kept giving me more and more raises. So I was kind of (laughs) like, okay, I have a fuck ton of student loans from going to two different colleges for undergrad. So I, uh, you know, just I just spent like all my money trying to like speed up my my loan payments, and then the pandemic hit. So I just started like saving as much as I could, and then I suddenly had like the cushion that I needed to start pursuing freelancing because it took me like I don't know, like six to eight months before I even got like my first gig, and it even that was like and it was I, I did like a couple editorial gigs that were a nightmare uh, at first. And obviously they didn't follow up for a second gig for many of those. Cause my, my style is just not really what they're looking for most of the time at Politico or something. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. And then, then I started looking into just getting tabletop RPG work. Yeah. I can imagine it and like uh, combined would be pretty brutal. Um, the, uh... Yeah, SPD was the worst, actually. Like, MICA cost more technically per tuition for each year, but they gave out way more grants. 
SGA gave almost no grants and the main student loan I'm still paying off is from them because I got like such a bad um, deal because I was 17 when I took out my first loan and um, they gave me like an insane variable interest rate that there was no way for me to comprehend at the time. And (laughs) it started capitalizing the moment I started school. So it was like a $25,000 loan that by the time I graduated had blown up to $60,000. Jesus. Is it, is it fair, is it fair to say you would not recommend uh, going to art school? I, I usually don't unless, unless like you get a full ride or your parents can pay for it. Do not take student loans out to go to art school. It's not worth it. Yeah, that's fair. Like it's a great experience, but it's, you know, the value (laughs) there's, there's like not, um, the cost does not correlate to the value. Oh no, no, it's definitely not a decision that makes any sense from a business perspective. From a financial perspective. Yeah. Where did you go to school? I went to University of the Arts. I was going to go to MICA. Um, I just took, I just went to whatever school gave me the most money. And yeah. that was, it was in a city that was cheap. And so, the Arts and MICA, just like MICA, they like, they kind of have these high tuitions, I think, to seem like they're like a, well, MICA is a good school. I have a lot of things to say about UArts. But uh, <laughs> they kind of have this like standard art school tuition, but then they just give out like a shit ton of of uh, grants. So it was like I don't even know. It was like twelve thousand dollars, or or Mike, I think it was like nine or something. And but then I learned that like so like it was it was so free flowing that someone called them and was like crying, and they just gave them like an extra three thousand a year, <laughs> and, and that made me feel like it was pretty arbitrary. Um, but I yeah, yeah, I went to stuff is arbitrary. It, it always feels like random. Yeah, it's. I mean, once you see how much money institutions have, it often feels like there's no logic to how things are getting doled out. But like I said, I went for illustration, then I finished with a painting and drawing degree, mostly because I didn't. Maybe in a slightly bradish way, I was not fond of the idea of. Um, what do you say? Target marketing. That, yeah. 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 I just thought it was antithetical to the way I wanted to organically grow. And so at that point, I left illustration and entered um, painting, which no one painted in the painting department. And I made like weird, weird video art and, and performance art. I wanted to embrace the, even though I was suspicious of a certain way of making contemporary art, I also needed to embrace it to understand what I didn't like about it. And it's not like I regret it, but ultimately I couldn't approach it without a sense of irony. Everything I did kind of like, because I don't think I believed in like the mission of, of some of the modes of making contemporary art, but I had fun. And, and then I got out of school and uh, yeah, basically just made comics until I got editorial work. And because at that time, I don't know, Tumblr existed and it seems... I don't know if I'm just an old man or something, but it just seemed like Tumblr was a little easier to do that in, as opposed to where Instagram is at now. Yeah, and no, definitely. I, <laughs> I think like Tumblr is, was like the last good website. That was like, <laughs> it was like social media was a bad idea and Tumblr was like the last good 
type of social media and it, it like it only worked because of the time period and the like just the way things were or something you know it, it was just like obviously it can't work now and <laughs> we're seeing we're seeing that in real time as tumblr tries over and over again to come back or like co-host or these other kind of tumblr clones pop up that i don't know yeah it's weird i, I don't even i'm not a big fan of advice in general unless someone asks for something very specific but if a kid were to try to ask me how do you i don't know like just organically find your way towards the work that makes sense for you i have no idea what to do anymore because even at the time like you said like finding freelance work for me was make sure i was dil diligent about comics and tumblr and then my friend neve uh, he would share with me like a giant email list of art directors and I would BCC them and I'd get like two or three replies. But I was completely against like physical mailing because I didn't have the money to do it. Yeah. And it was like a very half-hearted, lazy way to get work. But I kind of had a suspicion that editorial wasn't going to work for me anyway. And... Outside of some really odd work, like I worked for Esquire, but their Russian division, and we, we could barely communicate, which allowed me to do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was always a fan of work that was in different countries because, like, there was only so much uh, nitpicking they could do. And yeah, that's the fa my favorite work. I think just working with the uh, European or or Russian. Um, magazines yeah that makes sense a lot of my clients are, are in europe also um for tabletop rpgs oddly enough so I, that's I, fascinating I've been working with a lot of europeans like half of half of my clients probably that's so interesting yeah i'm i'm very interested in that world of board games more like i i think i'm into i don't know the, the categorical definitions of board games that well but at least abstract is a is a type of kind of simplified board game and and I find the aesthetics are pretty some games are interesting, but it's pretty it's pretty limited, almost like Marvel and DC. It's like this is just the accept acceptable window of expression for these games. Yeah. So it's it's very uh, inspiring to hear someone again with a, a different aesthetic, a different world, uh that, that these things are being made and funded. Would you say that Kickstarter is involved in this a lot or no? Absolutely. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is uh, like one of the big realities of my career right now is that Kickstarter plays a massive role in um, where the funding comes from for a lot of the games that I work on. Not what, all of them, what is unfortunate? I don't know enough about Kickstarter to have any opinion about it, but what is unfortunate about that? Just, just that... It's, I mean, it's like one platform that has that much control. So, you know, if Kickstarter ever disappears, the other crowdfunding sites are fine, but they're not Kickstarter. Like the amount of money you can raise on Kickstarter is just so much greater than the amount that you can run, get on any of their competitors, just because they have um, like a years and years and years of like database of people that have, um, backed other campaigns so they can target people really easily the discoverability is like bar none for kickstarter and do you feel that they leverage that 
Or are they pretty um, fair as a platform? I don't know. I mean, like, I think that they they do just the way any business does that has like an edge on the market. You know, like we're the we're the place to go. You know, but yeah. you know, they 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 aren't like controversy free. You know, like there there was like um, a big snafu with them trying to get in on blockchain stuff during like the height of people hating NFTs. So um, there was. A lot of talk about people just all leaving Kickstarter. Um, unfortunately, none of the um, none of the alternatives have panned out to the the level of Kickstarter. So everybody kind of ended up back on Kickstarter. I mean, not not everybody. Some people really have like stuck to their guns and used other services, but a lot of the other services also are weird. There's Crowdfunder, which is like I don't know, totally a mess and <laughs> i got into a like huge argument with their ceo weirdly enough because um i caught them th- their whole gimmick was they were like we're like kickstarter but instead of wanting to do nfts we won't do nfts we won't do any blockchain stuff we'll do exactly what artists want instead of you know selling them as a product which is like okay that sounds cool like within a month of launching, they um, had a an NFT project that they like were auto promoting on their social media channels. So it's like, what the fuck is this? Like you couldn't even make it a month without like totally going against your one selling point. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, my account. I was like the number one grievance guy in the comic scene for NFTs for a while. So oh, oh yeah. Like, people sought out my Twitter account for that for a minute. So I like that. I like that. a lot of so people noticed title. when I um, brought it, brought up the crowdfunder thing. So the CEO of the company messaged me, but his message was like so weird and confrontational. He was like, he's like, I don't really see what the problem is here because um, I thought like, you know, some NFTs are bad and some blockchain stuff is bad, but like, I thought that we were all on the same page that um, actually there could be like good cryptocurrencies and stuff like that. And he was just like trying to act like I was stupid and I didn't know anything that I was talking about. So I was just basically like, I don't really want to have this conversation with you, dude. Fuck you. And he was like, I'm just trying to find out what uh, the problem is here and like correct the situation. And I was like, I don't ask me. I, I, I just noticed that you guys did this shitty thing. And then you're like coming in here to kind of confirm that you guys are pro crypto. So I don't really know what you want me to say. Um, then eventually there was so much upset that they did apologize to everybody except for me. And they blocked me. Interesting. Well, you're number one grievance guy, which I think is a very, I love that title. <laughs> I, can you, can you give me a? Can you give I mean, me a? It's my whole life, I, I can't stop myself. Say again. I'm just an aggrieved person. <laughs> can you give me a concise? Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on NFTs, since it seems like it's important. Uh well, I don't think about NFTs that much anymore, since the market has totally crashed and everything that anyone with a brain predicted would happen happened but you know in general cryptocurrency is a right-wing scam that exists to create a a deregulation situation for billionaires where they don't have to 
do even like the modicum of regulated transactions that they already do. So, you know, they, they tried for a while to convince artists who are the main drivers of gentrification in the minds of, you know, rich people like that, I think. So they, they saw that I think as a good entry point into creating a, uh, reason for crypto to exist because the entire blockchain is is just a solution looking for a problem it's totally doesn't make sense to use for almost anything but i don't know <laughs> they, you know they're still trying to do crypto and some people are still trying to sell nfts but it's it's a really sad situation where it's a race to the bottom of of like people that have already been scammed trying to find a person that's stupider than them Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's just a rabbit hole NFTs. I really don't know much about it. I look at it more from an aesthetic uh, side. Yeah. Where I just, I just think, and I don't even understand it. But <laughs> I don't. And they're empty. You know, that's that's like the worst part is that you know no one was making like good art for NFTs. They're just making yeah, yeah. you know at best really nice looking um, like demo reels. You know. I think I was fascinated by the naturally emergent aesthetic of like, especially the first, whatever that one that sold that was like $60 million or something. Oh yeah. The Beeple one. And it was just terrible. Like, I, I don't know Beeple. I don't, but it was just interesting to me. Like what, even with Tumblr, there's like, there was like this emergent aesthetic that I always find that very interesting. You know, like so many things can be posted about or drawn and it was always interesting for me to see like fairly at least Tumblr, like a neutral website where anyone could post, but it would develop into this, this way that you could be like, Oh, that's a Tumblr ish looking draw drawing or sentiment. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting phenomenon of, of the internet era where, yeah, there's just like, yeah, people, I mean, people definitely, look at stuff now and think like that has like like an nft looking thing yeah, like anything yeah, yeah. that looks stupid computer generated is now like that looks like an nft or you know ai art now yeah do you want to what's your <laughs> if you're an aggrieved griever i'm curious like do you want to talk about ai or is that just too much of a i could yeah i mean i definitely hate ai shit i think it's I mean, I don't think that the problem with it is that it looks fucking horrible in almost every single case. I think that that is just a byproduct of the lack of creativity and, you know, just just kind of like dullness of, of its biggest fans. But, uh, you know, it's... I don't like... I mean, you know, I, I don't like that... The AI prompt generators and image generators are all built on stolen data, you know? Sure, sure. I, it, it's, it's like another kind of one of these, um, it's very similar to NFTs in that it's like, uh, just a totally kind of like fake, not like, um, it's like an astroturfed kind of thing where people are like, oh, it's this new thing that can free up art for all these people and like, give uh, everyone this this new power that they never had, which, you know, is crazy just from the perspective of that, like, just by virtue of being a human being, you can make art. But um, 
you know, also the fact that no, like this, this is a technology that's created with billions of dollars from these huge, massive corporations that explicitly designed this software to replace artists, to replace the idea of art workers, which, you know, like we can argue all day or not about whether or not it makes sense to commodify art, you know, which I don't think it does, even though that's my career, but that's like mm -hmm. a, another conversation. I think it's just, you know, in capitalism, you have to do certain things to get by. And a lot of what we do is just abstracted and doesn't really make sense uh, in the grand scheme of life. But, you know, people people seek out stuff like AI because they they like, you know, people are lazy now and they they want to have uh sure. they want to do they want to skip the steps of having to do anything they want to create content because that's what the internet has kind of incentivized everybody to do that's why all young people they don't dream of like growing up to be movie stars anymore for the most part like if you talk to a, a mm. child now they want to be a tiktoker interesting tiktoker or youtuber you know they, they don't they don't care about anything uh well no <laughs> i don't want to generalize too much sure, sure. children have like they really buy into the creator economy you know well yeah it's what they're surrounded by yeah i, I, I mean think, it makes sense and i don't blame them <laughs> i think it's natural that uh once the nerds acquired billions they i think i think many people envy artists without being them if they were an artist they might not envy it much but yeah i i do think there's that aspect to ai where it's just like it's kind of the last area of power that they would logically seek once they acquired all the or large sums of money it's like this kind of transcendent and intangible spirit that is less easy to grasp Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly the appeal of NFTs, too. You know, it was like they want the capital of coolness. You know, they, they don't want to they don't they don't want to figure out what's cool, though. They just want to determine what's cool. And <laughs> they hmm. frustratingly have found out that that's not so simple. Yeah. You know, I have like a, a lot of grievances with the art world, having run a gallery for three years just to kind of learn about it. Yeah. And um I had this weird moment where I was like, oh, because like, I kind of don't, I don't really love the, what would you say, opacity and uh, exclusivity of the art world. I feel that it is at a certain point, you know, just like normal people and art, they grew more and more distant. And, and then I, having seen what NFT, NFTs produce from an aesthetic perspective, I was like, oh, maybe they're... <laughs> at least like there is some brilliant fine art that is made and and um you know what would you say promoted by the art world quote unquote and it's far superior to whatever the the kind of nft what was it beeple looking shit or like the yeah. stuff that was selling for millions i was like holy fuck this is um this is astoundingly bad work and and i guess that's part of this you know, part of it just being independent of all this gatekeeping, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a situation where these people all, like, you know, 
they saw an emperor's new clothes situation happening with the fine art market and they were like what what if we're all emperors <laughs> instead of you know noticing that it's just a totally backwards situation yeah. you know well anyway we'll get away from all these large abstract topics you have also a you have a co co-op yeah co -op? I, was, I was trying to find a <laughs> an entry point to talking about the cartoon sure, sure. cooperative. Um, yeah. Although we may be rebranding slightly soon because uh, we may legally not be able to keep the name cooperative in our title. But um, yeah, we, um, me, uh, five other cartoonists started the cartoonist co-op in February of this year. And mm -hmm. it kind of took off right away. Um, mostly we took, um, we took advantage of all the hype around the comics broke me hashtag stuff. Um, comics broke me. Yeah. So there was a hashtag going around on um, social media called comics broke me. I can't remember who started it. I'm terrible at remembering details of stuff like this, but mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, people just talking about the difficulties of being a comic artist or like, you know, how, how long it takes, how difficult it is, how bad the pay is, how the publishers, you know, often don't even pay the bad pay that they're offering you, how bad distribution is, how bad the festivals are. You know, it's it, mm. there's a lot of problems <laughs> in in the comics industry from, you know, from indie comics all the way up to mainstream big two stuff. So, um it was something we Sloan Leong started a Discord server and invited a bunch of people um, sometime during the pandemic. I mean, pandemic's still going, but I don't. I, I kind of just have like decided any time up until today is during the pandemic. So sometime in the middle of then, um, Sloan Leong started a Discord and a bunch of cartoonists were on there. We were all talking about how much it sucks we can't unionize how terrible everything is in terms of like what you what kind of deal you can get from publishers how easy it is to burn out and um we we just started talking more seriously about doing something like forming a union or something and then we started talking more seriously about what kind of um what that would look like what kind of like organization we could structure because um we can't formally start a union because um freelancers are not recognized as employees they're recognized as small businesses so any any sort of um collusion amongst freelancers is considering price fixing oh um, interesting yes yeah, so th there's there's a lot of barriers but you know slowly workers rights are, are getting a little bit better right now because of all the strikes and all the the gains and all the unionizing and so we're hoping eventually that the laws change around this a little bit but in the meantime our goal is to create a an organization where it's all cartoonists all member run um we don't accept we don't um we don't have people pay dues it's all labor sharing so it's mostly um helping people uh set up you know uh, like their their books or layout or um, helping people promote their work, uh, stuff like that, uh, giving feedback. Um, but 
like, you know, we're, right now we're trying to do kind of a labor share thing, but ultimately we want to create um, an organization that's large enough and has enough members that we can actually start like withholding some of our labor, start um, creating uh, guidelines that we would expect publishers to be able to follow that are fair. And if they don't, then we would recommend our members don't, you know, seek them out for publishing or whatever, you know? Right. Uh, and like I said, it took off pretty fast. We got like maybe like three or 400 members just in like the first month by the second or third month, we had like 600. I think we have close to a thousand members now. Well, wow. uh, but we're, we're constantly, we're still really building it out. We like just finished our first draft of bylaws. Um, we're, we're, we're still trying to really figure out like what we can do with it, but it's been a really good experience so far, even for like less than a year, we've built up a big organization. We have helped a lot of people um, get their, their stuff a little bit more noticed than it would have had. Um, we've started getting uh, discounts for different businesses that cartoonists use like um, print printers and stuff like that. Uh, trying to, trying to make like a valuable thing that, that cartoonists can sort of seek out. We have like a ton of resources we provide. Um, so that's like all centralized and organized. So if a cartoonist, a cartoonist would join the cooperative, is that yeah, how it would work? Exactly. And, um, instead of paying dues, you do a labor share. So once every six months, which is, you know, <laughs> I feel like that's like enough time to, to find some time to help somebody else out. You just have to help out either somebody else in the co-op or um, do some kind of like infrastructural help for the co-op, like running our social media or helping with our newsletter or um, creating art for um, like flyers and stuff like that. Yeah, that's very reasonable. Yeah, I mean, cartoonists are broke, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. can't can't expect. I mean, it's like no one can afford the dues. You know, pe some people have gotten kind of like, you know, uppity about like where we are as a, an organization. Like, um, we've had people criticize us for not having like lawyers on retainer and stuff like that. And you know, that's like a goal of ours, um, like that, and like you know, providing healthcare or something. But it's not tenable. <laughs> Like there's there there's not enough money in the comics economy to even like pool that much money together, you know. But it's yeah, that hopefully sounds... eventually something that we can do. We're trying to become a nonprofit so we can start um, seeking grants and stuff, and you know, hopefully we can actually have those things like like lawyers and healthcare and stuff that you would expect a union or a guild or something to be able to provide. Interesting. Yeah, people should definitely check that out. Yeah, cartoonist.coop. That's the website. And you were mentioning you might have to change the word cooperative? Yeah, um, because the United States recognizes cooperatives as being um, sharing of like monetary income and stuff like that. So since we would not be doing income sharing, we cannot call ourselves a cooperative um, in any of our legal documents in our advertising. I think we're still kind of trying to figure it out. We're, we're you know we, we occasionally are able to like meet with lawyers that give us some like pro bono advice and stuff like that. So we have like another meeting coming up, but 
uh, yeah, uh, it, it might just turn into being called like the Cartoonist Cooperative Guild or something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, on a different topic, I'm kind of curious how you got into the 3D aspect of the work. Oh yeah, I, I always wanted to do 3D graphics. When I was like a kid, I would, I would like draw Tekken and like Virtua Fighter characters, but I would like draw each polygon and try to like match the shading with like pencil and my, you know, horrible hmm. children's uh, sketchbook. <laughs> but I, I, I like couldn't comprehend how how it worked on the computer at all. I mean, I really wasn't much of a digital artist until a little bit after college. Like I had like a process where um, I would draw everything by hand first and then I would scan it in and then um, like do some like shading or something on the computer and then print it back up and like draw more over it and then bring it back. And then eventually I, I got sick of, scanning stuff over and over again so i got myself like a tablet and figured out how to draw on the computer but um yeah i like that about the work i can't quite understand what's drawn and what isn't and maybe the answer now is like you figured out a way to make it field drawn and there's like a render style that i no there's always there's always a mix so um i do i do kind of purposefully do that though where i i try to make it really difficult to tell what's what's drawn and what's uh like a 3d render and what's like a photo bash or something but would it would it be accurate to say there's always a 3d and 2d element or hand-drawn element yeah always i think always i I, there might have been like it might be a couple pieces where there's like barely any drawing but um because I have gotten, I have figured out more and more, and the technology has changed more and more to allow me to be able to um, fake the drawing a little bit more with the 3D software. Almost um, like a grease pencil or whatever that's called. Yeah, I mean, I've been using Blender for a few years, and they, they're like grease pencil um, stuff. They're like the modifier and stuff that they added like last year really changed. Um, I didn't really change anything about like the look of my artwork, but it changed how much time I had to spend like drawing my own lines. Do you uh, find that you lean more towards 3D uh, than before, or is it kind of like like does that concern you that balance ever, or are you are you cool with you know working on a computer most of the time versus paper? No, I, I like. I like working on the computer. It's it's like more comfortable for me now. Like, you know, I, it obviously it helps me as a professional illustrator to be able to work quicker uh, digitally. But given the choice to work on paper or work digitally now, I would just still work digitally because I really enjoy um, 3D software. So was there was there ever any hesitation about that? I know for me personally, I was like kind of arbitrary well it wasn't completely arbitrary but i was like pretty skeptical of using a tablet until frankly editorial illustration kind of just forced it because of the revisions and the color shifts and you know there's just a kind of malleability that art directors need out of illustrators now yeah definitely um but yeah i don't know i I don't think i ever had the i was never like anti-working digitally i just couldn't figure it out for a while like it it just never felt right um i think you know i 
I had like a tablet when I was in high school too. I I did actually start um like I had like a DeviantArt account when I was in high school and I I would do like digital paintings and oakaki and stuff like that. I don't know what the oakaki is. It is this message board where you could draw um like a kind of pixelated picture but it 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 was kind of like as good as I feel like Microsoft Paint is now like you could do kind of like airbrush shading and stuff so it was it looked better than Microsoft Paint at the time and it was a browser based but you could just you would just draw like in your browser and then upload it is that where pixel dog kind of is born out of is that what it's born out of no but i i did um experiment with pixel art a lot just over the years before i started making pixel dog just just because it's like fun and easy um and you don't need a powerful machine at all so um that definitely made it a lot easier for me to use but uh no i started i pixel dog was like i i drew um a tattoo design for a friend and they didn't want they didn't like it <laughs> so um I decided to just do like a pixel art experiment where I, I shrunk down the drawing and then traced over it uh, with just pixels in Photoshop. And then, I don't know, then I decided to make like one strip of pixel dog and people on Tumblr liked it. So I kept making it. And now you have hundreds. Yeah, thousands. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I use I use a different software now. I use a software called Asaprite which is like a $15 program that you can get for the PC that has the best tools for pixel art. It like, um, like the gradients and stuff are automatic. Uh, you can just select an area and press one button and it turns it into a brush. So I, I take advantage of that a lot. Does pixel dog have a personality? Yeah, I think it's just like, my personality at its most abrasive. <laughs> the like dog, the, most, this like, dog itself? Abrasive. Uh, but like the dog or the comic is that? The dog is just like a central visual character, right? He's always somewhere in the panel. He's the one talking. Oh, he's talking. He's kind of yelling. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, there's Pixel Dog. He does all the talking, and then there's his sidekick character slash lover slash best friend, d- depending on the comic, uh, Kevin, and he uh, does not talk ever. He's kind of like a a bloody-headed, two-legged fella. Yeah, I think he's got one leg, but oh, he's got one leg. I, I like I like to hear what people's interpretations are. <laughs> I, I think I, I didn't really have too much in mind. I, that was like a doodle I did at work when I was working at the art supply store, and that I just I turned it into a pixel art too. And I think it was just like a eyeball with a bunch of like veins attached to a leg and a butt or something. But I've heard people say that they think that he's a comet or like a a star or something. I don't know. Interesting. And is there like a daily exercise with him or does he just emerge randomly? He just emerges randomly. I haven't been good at updating Pixel Dog lately. I think after a thousand, I got kind of like a little more lazy about it. But um, I've been like, I've had like kind of a crazy year, so I've been really busy. So it's been like every once in a while, I'll 
be able to sit down and make a month's worth of pixel dog comics, which is usually how I do it. Um, and then I'll have like 30 to, to post for 30 days. And then there's another lapse until I get around to making more, but I used to be good at, um, having it consistently every single day come out. And it was a nice, I don't like think too hard about it is I think of it kind of like a creative spit valve. I just sit down and write out a bunch of jokes or something like unfiltered. And then I just draw what comes to mind and no, I don't allow myself to edit it or, um, or even consider if the ideas are good or not. I just need to make it because I need to make so many to have it be ready every day. Yeah, I understand. Interesting. Is that born of a video game affection? That kind of aesthetic? Like, do video games figure into your life a lot, or did they? Yeah, definitely. They still do? Yeah. I, I, you know, I think there was, like, a time period, like, right, like, during and then right after college where I just didn't have any money, so I didn't have any video games. I don't think I even had a TV for a while. So um, there was like a lapse where I didn't play any video games for years. And then, uh, I don't know, sometime like a decade ago, I think I just started playing video games again. And it seems like it's common now for everyone to play video games. Do you find new new games? I know somebody was showing me a very strange horror game that was very pixely. I have no recollection of it. World um, of War. Say again? World of Horror. I'm not sure. It was on. It like has. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm I'm, guess, I'm guessing this based on like the vaguest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But <laughs> there's this like popular horror game that's really cool looking uh, called World of Horror that just came out recently, but it's been in beta or alpha for years. But it's like, it's a kind of like Junji Ito looking artwork, but like pixel art and oh, yeah, yeah. Like, kind of like a you know like old school menu uh, like UI type of deal. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Is that a thing you... Do you have any interest in pursuing that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to work on more video games. It's... I, I For a while, I, I thought that maybe I could just, like, make my own game. Um, like, I've researched all these different game engines and stuff. Um, I, you know, I'd like to make, like, a point-and-click adventure game or something like that, or an RPG. I don't know. But uh, I, I don't think I have the... If, if I could, like, have, um, like, complete financial freedom where I didn't need to think about money, I could, like, focus on a project like that. But having to have my um, concentration pulled away by other work makes it really hard for me to, like, maintain a long-term project like that. So, uh, mostly I'm, I'm more hoping that I can find more, like, video game gigs or something where I get to work on people's really cool video games. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a very good fit. And I imagine, like, it might ha naturally happen from the RPG tabletop experience you have. Yeah, I've worked on a couple, like, like you know, really small, like, personal games that haven't been released yet. Uh, but, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that eventually it turns into more gigs. It's, really, it's like a hard uh, industry to break into. I can imagine. I've known some people who do that. It seems very difficult. Yeah. I even when I was like really trying to like find a job before I started uh freelancing for tabletop RPGs mainly, I, I like 
even try getting like an 80 level account, which is like this website where they have all these like listings for video game jobs and you have to like submit a portfolio to get accepted. And they rejected my portfolio and I was just like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is, this is as good as my portfolio is going to be. So do you spend, uh, you seem like you're quite prolific. Do you spend most of your time making something? I think so, but I don't, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm very prolific. <laughs> I, I feel like, um, I don't know. I, I think I just work fast, honestly. Uh, like talking to other people that like, especially other illustrators, they spend a lot more time on their illustrations than I do. Mm. And I, but it's like, seems like it takes me the same amount of days <laughs> as it does other people. I think I just don't have the stamina that other people have to like work for like drawing just like 10 hours a day or something, you know, I can't yeah, yeah. do it for maybe like, like four to six hours on a good day. And most days it's like two to three hours. And then the rest of the time I'm just trying to promote myself on social media or doing like administrative work, like emailing clients or filling out invoices or whatever. Do you feel like, do you include 3D modeling in that, that calculation of time drawing? Is that like the same act essentially to you? Yeah, it's all, yeah, it's all part of the same act. I, I call it drawing, but yeah, most of the time I'm like sculpting in 3D. And you just taught yourself how to use Blender yep. via, via tutorials? Yeah, I watched a lot of YouTube tutorials. I, I just basically got in the habit of watching Blender tutorials on YouTube like there were TV shows. That's cool. Yeah, I found that that's just the easiest way to learn it, learn any kind of software. Is I, I used to try to like sit at the computer with like a video of of like you know uh, like a tutorial of something, some new software I'm trying to learn, and just trying to follow along like each step of the way, and it would just be so grueling. So I just I figured out that I can if I watch like three different like first look beginner tutorials for like a new software that'll be enough to like get me started if i if i don't like waste time trying to to follow along to a t you know eventually you you remember like oh yeah i saw in the tutorial that you can do that so that i remembered that i can like google how to do that because i forgot but at least i know that it's a possibility which before i didn't know anything so did you find it difficult to integrate or find your style within that process or did that come rather naturally? Yeah, I, I think that was like a big, um, that was like one, one thing that was like hold, holding me up from like ever really learning 3d stuff for a while was that I just couldn't figure out how it would relate to my art. And I thought that if I started doing 3d work, it would just be totally different than the art that I was already making. But yeah. it seemed like it just kind of like the more I learned and the more I figured out what you could do with 3D, the more I kind of saw how it like fit in with my work and how I could like kind of do like a natural progression of the work that I was doing to just making it kind of like way better with 3D. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting how they they play it off of each other. Yeah. But I, I originally, when I was trying to get into it, um, I asked my buddy Jordan Spear for some yeah. advice because he does really amazing uh, yeah, yeah. illustrations. And he, he was like, well, I just use Wings 3D, which is this like free, really simple modeling software. And then 
if he needed to do anything organic, he would use this program called Sculptress, which is this free um, kind of like ZBrush. Uh, it was like it was made by this people that made ZBrush, but it was like a free kind of like beginners thing. But you could really, you know, do do a bunch with it. I tried Wings 3D first, and I couldn't like I, I did like a t- tutorial on how to make a chair, and I was just like I can't wrap my brain around this. So then I I tried Sculptress, and that made a little bit more sense to me, but. It took. It definitely took a while. Where I feel like I wasn't like making any art. I was just trying to like develop my my own artwork. Like not making any finished pieces. Just kind of trying to figure out like how to do stuff. So it took it took a while to kind of like make three D work with my brain. But it totally changed even the way that I draw now. Like I can really conceptualize a 3d space in a way that I was not able to before. I feel like my work was like really flat before. That's very interesting. So you can like draw with volume more now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, so, it makes more sense to me, like the different like angles of things and like how, how things look from different positions. I think, I, I think also, you know, tracing over 3d models helps your, you know, muscle memory, just kind of figure it out too. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's hard to imagine when you just see these tutorials of that are f- focused on realism, essentially. You know, typically the tutorial is trying to teach you how to make a thing that exists in reality and make it look exactly the same. Yeah. Tutorials are also very boring because the people that make them are very boring and they just want to make realistic looking stuff. And it's really hard to find any anybody doing creative tutorials where they're like, really trying to figure out like how to push the software. So a lot of the more experimental stuff is with stuff I've figured out on my own, pretty much like, um, so part of my process requires clip studio paint because it has a really good, um, live, uh, halftone filters and stuff that I can like adjust on the fly, but it also converts like photos and like 3d renders and stuff into like kind of more 2d looking, uh, images so that saves me that's like kind of how i bring a render from blender into becoming more like a drawing yeah i I worked with jordan spear once a while ago and i remember i was always trying to figure out how he got it to feel his work to feel a little more textured and it was the answer was so obvious he just printed things out and then (laughs) scanned them back in i remember asking him about that and he was just like yeah no, I just print these out and then I just scan them again. And I was like, oh, I thought there was like some filter. I don't know. I, I'm always now I'm, I'm so lazy about that kind of thing. I'm always seeking out like a filter or an app. I, ha- I have like a dozen different random like glitch and texture apps on my on my iPad that I, I run my artwork through every once in a while just to like make it look rougher sometimes. Yeah, it's always um I don't know. It's inspiring for me to see people navigate these infinitely complex programs with like, there's like millions of choices you can make. And then just to see where they, you know, like that very constrained approach they take to make sure that they have like a consistent voice. I find that to be very interesting. Even Jordan, like there's this clarity, like you obviously know it's his work and it sounds like he keeps his process uh, as simple as he can 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, he definitely does more complicated stuff now than he, he did initially when, when I was talking to him about that. Like, I know he uses um, Cinema 4D for a lot of stuff now, which I don't like. I tried learning Cinema 4D. I couldn't figure it out. And then I was like, what's the point? I know Blender and it's free. So, but um, he, he does stuff with like, like the way that he has like a rim light on everything is like, it's like not done with like the lighting. It's done with the texturing. It, it's really interesting mm-hmm. the way that he does stuff to, to make it feel like an illustration and, and to make it look like his work and not just like, a 3d render because you know you like you see 3d renders most of the time and they all kind of look samey because they're all trying to you know a lot of 3d rendering is just to like sell products and stuff like that so it's like this is the one way that looks the most like you took a real photo of a real product but it looks so clean and shiny you know that's that's mostly what people are like seeking out when they learn 3d but there's just i don't know there's so many possibilities i, I you know i, I want to start doing um i don't know, like live streams where i teach like artists and cartoonists especially how to use blender because i was gonna ask really that not I think, hard. yeah i think that's a great idea yeah it's it's hard in the way that like you open it up and it doesn't look like anything you could possibly recognize because it's not similar to photoshop or any other software that most people use but like once you know what it's supposed to do, it's really not too difficult. Yeah, well, I appreciate you have that impulse to kind of give back or think about it more holistically. I yeah. think a, I think a tutorial from someone who's not just trying to make a car for a car commercial you know, would be fascinating. Yeah, and it's you know because those <clears throat> those tutorials also overcomplicate things, you know. Most artists, you know, are just trying to make image reference. You know, they don't they don't need something that's like perfectly lit and has like the exact right number of like samples in the render. You know? Yeah, like, most I, you know, want to be able to like sculpt the the snowman real quick or something. Yeah, and some people don't have like super beefed up computers that can even handle these renders. I assume. Yeah, my mine can't. I, I got like you know, the cheapest gaming PC I could like something that was like just powerful enough to render 3d software, but like it was cheap because I'm poor, you know? <laughs> right, right. So I, I, you know, I, I think that's, that also is sort of lends itself to my style is, is that like, I don't really want to do like finish 3d renders because I just don't have the, technology for it i don't don't really want to spend like four thousand dollars on a computer that's going to like increase my electricity bill by like 30 percent or something like that you know i'd I'd rather just make 3d stuff that i can convert into drawings and it doesn't matter how like low poly or scratchy or pixelated anything comes out because i can fix it in the drawing that makes sense and you kind of retain a sense of greediness via this very cold process which i find interesting the ability to use a cold 3d rendering program but give it life and filth in a sense yeah something some things that are nice about blender though is how how kind of like janky it still is in some ways like there's sometimes i get like these happy accidents where um you know something breaks in blender and it, it comes out in this really cool way and i get to just keep it like that but as as time goes on, Blender gets better developed and some of those kinks are going to be gone and I'll miss them. I'll have to figure something else out. Right. 
So do you have anything coming up that should be noted? Obviously, people should check out the cartoonist cooperative and Pixel, yes. Pixel Dog is still in hell yep. and, and still doing his thing. Yeah, at Pixel Dog in Hell on Instagram. Uh, <clears throat> otherwise, you know, I just I'm working on lots of tabletop RPG stuff. I have um, nothing that's coming out soon. I don't think uh, I'm working on a deluxe edition for that game, Liminal Horror. I mentioned I have um, another game that's like my own adventure. That's like the first thing that I am like in charge of, where I have to is a publisher. Uh, approached me to um, develop a, an adventure for a, another system, and uh, we have to hire like writers and editors and stuff. But I'm doing all the artwork, and it's preliminarily uh, right right now. Tentatively, it's called uh, Frog World. It's going to be just a fucked up kind of frog world. <laughs> We're, all right, on. So people should be looking at for Frog World. Where yes. can people find these tabletop RPGs? Um, all over the place, honestly. I, I have a itch.io account where... Um, what, is, what is that? I saw that word. Oh, it's, I've seen itch, that word. Itch is a, um, it's like a digital marketplace. Okay. It's it's, it's just like a, an easy way to sell, um, like, PDFs and digital products and stuff. Uh, I used to use Gumroad, but I also got into a thing with their CEO, so... <laughs> <laughs> Seeing a pattern. Yeah, but um, itch.io, I have a bunch of my games, and I have, like, links out to other stuff that I worked on from there. I mean, you could also just check my website, emo-sludge.com. Uh, pretty much everything that I do is on there, and, and if not, it, there's, like, a link to my different social medias where I post a lot of disparate stuff. I need to, I need to be better about collecting everything in one place. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to process on this website. In a good way. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Good to meet you. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good night. All right, you too. See Bye-bye. ya. Music by Dory Bavarsky and Ming Jia Chen. Next up, we have Armando Veve. Have a great week.